Hello, and welcome to Frame, the podcast exploring the role of WashU in the non-academic lives of its students. My name is Raja Krishna, and I'm a senior here at WashU, majoring in economics and international area studies. I'm here with my two co-hosts. Hey there, my name is Elliot Louthan, and I'm a senior studying political science and healthcare management. And my name is David Gilmore, and I'm a senior studying economics and environmental studies. The idea behind the show is to wrestle with some of the broader philosophical questions relating to our student experience. But before we go any further, let me get a little disclaimer out of the way. Over our past three years here at WashU, we found there are no right answers to any of these questions, but we do think there is immense value in raising them. Disclaimer part two, this is an adventure for us. We've never really done anything like this before, so bear with us. Okay, let's get started. Okay, uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Uh, my name is Danny Wissentowski. I am a staff writer at the Riverfront Times. Okay, great. Um, and Danny, you're here to talk about the pending wrongful death lawsuit against uh, Washington University, right? Uh, yeah, I, it is, <laughs> it is one of, uh, probably one of the strangest lawsuits um, I've ever covered. Um, it is uh, legally weird and also um, emotionally troubling. Okay, let's pause here, because some of you are probably a little bit confused. Yes, you're still listening to Frame, the show about the university's role in non-academic life. No, you're not listening to Serial. We are going to be talking about a lawsuit, but this is not a true crime show. We want to ask big questions about our university, and the best way to do that is to anchor our exploration in real-world events. Which brings us to this lawsuit. A few months ago, we came across an article written by Danny Wissentowski, who you met earlier, called Untangling the Wrongful Death Lawsuit Blaming Wash U for Fall from High Rise. It's a wordy title, but we found it to be a thorough and well-researched piece covering the fallout of an event that occurred here in St. Louis on October 27th, 2013. As some of our listeners may remember, October 27th was the day a South Korean international student named Young Song So fell to his death from the 23rd floor of the Dorchester apartment building on Skinker. The night before, he was out on the town with his friends, and forensic evidence suggests that he was tripping on LSD at the time of his death. After his passing, Young Sung's family filed suit against Wash U, seeking damages for the death of their son. In essence, the lawsuit alleges that Wash U is responsible. More specifically, though, its judicial code, its dealings with student drug rings both on and off campus, and its general preference to handle infractions internally even major ones, created an environment which caused So's death in the first place. Now remember, we're not here to pick apart the lawsuit itself. In fact, we can't. The suit is still pending in court, and many of the relevant documents aren't publicly available. But we also don't want to. Our area of expertise isn't the law. It's being students. We want to use this case as a springboard to ask questions about the university as an institution. Questions about liability, trust, education, and privilege for which answers are neither immediately obvious nor available. Now, full disclosure, the student who died, Young Song So, I was a friend of his. We studied abroad together and were in the same Chinese class. Losing him sucked. 
But while his death and subsequent lawsuit were the inspiration for this show, our explorations of the questions raised by the case are independent of any personal connection I had to Young. I can respect him as a person and the exuberant life that he led, while also turning a critical eye towards the claims his family is making against WashU. And similarly, all three of us can be grateful for our time at WashU and respect the opportunities it has afforded us while simultaneously investigating the conduct of our institution and others like it. All right, now that we're on the same page, let's get back to it. Raja, can you walk us through your interview with Danny? Gladly. Okay, so Danny was just about to describe this lawsuit. And my apologies to our listeners. Due to some technical difficulties, we had to record on my phone. I know, I'm an amateur. But try to focus on what Danny is saying, because he really dropped some bombs. Here we go. So could you give maybe our listeners like a brief overview of the, of the lawsuit in general? Um, yeah, well, the lawsuit um, is being brought... Um, by the, the So family of South Korea. And uh, the lawsuit really, um, it says a lot of things. Um, but what it essentially says is that the university um, has created um, an environment of, of danger, essentially. Um, and that it's responsible for his death, not necessarily because the university pushed him off that balcony, but because of all of the steps that led up to it. The university had time where they could have stopped it. And they didn't and that's the reason why So is dead. And although I think there are a lot of questions that are left about this lawsuit, is the university really responsible for his death, mm-hmm. especially when it involves drug taking, um, which is what this case really involves? It does leave us with a with a question of you know what society does the, does Washington University live in? Because it's not the same society and it's not the same America. Um, that most people live in, and especially um, people of St. Louis who live, you know, just minutes away. That's a pretty lofty accusation. Yeah, he made some pretty big claims like that during our interview. Well, that's fine, and definitely big picture. But what are the actual steps that led up to Young's death, Raj? Well, Elliot, I'm glad you asked, because the next thing I asked Danny was actually about Young's last night. Um, it is really interesting. I, I think the first thing to really understand um, about this story in that it, it is detailed, it is kind of lurid, um, but I, I think you'll, you'll realize by the end that though this, this story is, is on one hand crucial to understanding this case and understanding the point that this lawsuit is trying to make, it, it's also in a way irrelevant. Um, the details that is just the fact that Young Sang So died is really the kind of point that this lawsuit is is most important to this lawsuit, and I think that'll that'll make sense. Um, but really, you know, in kind of the Cliff Notes kind of way, um, you know, the night of October twenty sixth, uh, twenty thirteen, was actually you know seemingly very normal uh, for Young Sang So and a, and a group of his friends, um, according to police uh, documents and in later interviews. Um, that night, um, he was in the Ameristar Casino in St. Charles. He gambled away a seemingly few hundred dollars. They drank and ate with a couple friends. The friends later said that there seemed to be nothing disturbing him that night, even though he, he did lose some money. They came back to their their apartments, or his apartment in the Dorchester, um, which is really just minutes from you know uh, the Washington University campus, right, right, yeah. blocks away, really. Walking distance. Um, and what we know is that when they got there, um, at some point he goes to a friend's house, uh, a friend, another friend's apartment, they take a tab of LSD. They're smoking some weed, um, you know, at the same time, um, late into, into the next morning of October 27th. 
So just to fast forward a bit, they take a drive through Forest Park, they visit John's Donuts, and then Young apparently requests another tab of acid. He wasn't feeling the first one. Exactly. So this group of five or six people, they go back to Young's apartment at the Dorchester, they watch some weird conspiracy theory documentary, and then all of them sort of pass out. Everyone eventually goes home except for one friend, Jim. That's not his real name, though? Right. That's what we're just going to call him. Uh, but Jim was the last person to see Young Sung alive. And then around 8.30 or so, another um, another person in an apartment lower uh, than the 23rd floor uh, would later tell the police that she thought she saw a shadow um, sort of flip past her window. That was Young? That was Young. Um, and she didn't make it nothing of it until about 40 minutes later when um, the sirens sort of attracted her to her window and she looked out and she looks down and see Young Sang's body um, on, on the sidewalk. And he had, you know, fallen sometime around 8.45 or 9. Um, they're not entirely sure. A jogger had discovered the body. And from there, um, you know, the police arrive. They go up, um, you know, they, the, the body is identified. They go up to Young Sang's room where they find, um, they find Jim, who is locked in Young Sang's room. Damn. Yeah. So they knock down the door, they arrest Jim for future questioning, and eventually go next door to an unoccupied showcase apartment. They find nothing except one set of footprints pressed into the carpet. They see no other footprints there, and they conclude that Young Sang um, you know, himself walked off this balcony. And initially, the death certificate is listed as a suicide. Wait, initially? Right, because once the family gets involved, and the investigation deepens, they find the drugs in his body. Yep, and the cause of death is revised to suspicious circumstances. So this wasn't as straightforward as it initially seemed. But back to Danny. What really kind of opens this case up is um, a fraternity, um, which is kind of odd because you know, Young Sang, from what I could find out, actually was not a member, uh, of, formally, of um, Sigma Alpha Mu. Um, yeah, so let's talk about, you mentioned earlier, you've mentioned this fraternity twice now, and I think, so, uh, you know, some of the listeners might be a little bit confused as to how the, you know, the history of Sigma Alpha Mu, or Sammy as we call it at Wash U, is even related to this case mm -hmm. at all. Could you explain how that's relevant? So if you, uh, if you ask, you know, someone in Wash U about Sigma Alpha Mu, they'll, they'll usually know them by Sammy's. And, and that's because they kind of have this, this notorious presence, or had, at least on, on campus, um, you know, going back to 1999, um, the, the fraternity, uh, which I, I'll, I'll just call Sammy's because that's what everyone calls them, they had a two-year suspension for uh, what the student newspaper called a poor leadership, financial woes, and a troubling behavior with alcohol. Um, and later on, you know, they, they returned in 2002, they got kicked out again in 2008 with another, you know, big drug bust. Um, and, you know, they were kicked off campus, but they were still um, sort of a registered fraternity so they could have events. And they, I guess they were part of the, the formal Greek life structure here. Mm. Um, and then in 2011, um, another investigation happened and um, more drug use, more hazing. And at that point, the, the university and the national um, Sigma Alpha Mu chapter, they just said, we're, we're done with you guys. And they, they disowned the chapter. They're no longer registered on campus. So what happens that to their... Yeah, I mean, what happens yeah. then is that the, the, the members of, mm -hmm. of that fraternity, um, you know, they still kind of keep 
um, connected, and they, they sort of moved to off-campus housing. They're all still friends. Yeah, they're all still friends. Okay. They moved to off-campus housing, um, one of which seems eventually they moved to the Dorchester. Wait, so where are we in the scheme of the lawsuit? Well, hold up a sec. So they all end up living together in the Dorchester, but that's not the end of the story. There's still the matter of their email listserv. Most notably, he's, he's list, he's on a, his email is present on a listserv, um, which has been used to sort of keep these, um, these, these, I guess, former fraternity brothers in contact. Now remember, Young was not a member of Sammy. He was close to a lot of the brothers, though, and he lived in the same building, so that's probably why they added him to their listserv. And what the private investigators found in that listserv, at least from what we know, is that they were selling drugs to each other. You know, they were saying, you know, does anyone want this, you know, ounce of shrooms? You know, you know, sell drugs to each other. Um, and in fact, a one of the emails on that listserv, um, which uh, the lawyers are trying, trying to use sort of as this crucial piece of evidence to show that Sigma Alpha Mu was this kind of criminal enterprise that mm -hmm. was thriving on campus, was that this listserv um, you know, sent, I guess, to, to freshmen or to like new members saying, you know, quote, the listserv is very important to us as a brotherhood. Um, you guys should use your listserv to organize yourselves, stay in touch, and most importantly, share hilarious pictures slash stories and sell each other drugs. And so, well, though Young Sang, again, never made a post on that listserv, at least from what I know, um, he was on it. And, you know, these these members who were communicating over that listserv were, were living together, living in the same buildings and were in the Dorchester, and they, they knew they were being chased. Um, there's another email at one point where one of them says, I, you know, I saw someone, you know, combing through our, you know, you know, look, seemingly maybe looking, looking for fingerprints or uh, the, the chemical evidence of, of, like, drugs, you know, right. looking through their common area. Um, so we know, you know, so this, this was sort of the state of Sammy's, you know, when Young Sang meets them in, in 2012 or 2013, um, and, and it becomes sort of a crucial question that looms over this of what did Young Sang know about this fraternity? What was his real involvement? Sure. And, you know, what what did they do to contribute to that last night? So that's where I'm a little bit confused. So you mentioned Sammy. You mentioned, you know, this, this fraternity that has sort of a troubled history of, you know, in and out of trouble with the university. Why, so where did this lawsuit come from then? And why is Young Song's family suing Wash U and not suing either Sammy or individual members of Sammy? Um, essentially, what's the rationale behind this lawsuit? Well, I, I think the, the, the crucial things to remember, and I, I think the points that, that the family and his lawyer and the, the So family's lawyers are trying to make is that of all the times that Sammy's was kicked off campus, you know, in 1999, in 2000, in, um, in 2008, in 2012, you know, you know, how many of those people went to jail? Why did this keep happening if this organization was seemingly built on a criminal enterprise? And what, what they're essentially saying is that all those people should have gone to jail. All those people in Sammy's, you know, the university knew. You know, obviously the university was conducting investigations. How many of those people really went to jail? How many of those people were, you know, met with the same kind of criminal, um, the criminal justice system that they would meet if they were busted in North City or if they were busted, you know, walking around Ferguson or, you know, just to, you know, to kind of point out the, the discrepancy in, in, in how the law is enforced. And what they're essentially saying is that had, had those students been thrown in jail for, you know, drug trafficking or, you know, possession in the same way that anyone else might be where they would have, you know, 
they would come away with at least maybe something on a record or a heavy fine, not just some disciplinary wrist slap from the university. You know, had this happened, you know, Young Sang perhaps would still be alive because the people he was with, and at least we know that the people he was with were part of this fraternity. Yeah. It's, you know, this... this the people he was with that night. That the night. that he died. Yeah, I mean, these... They I mean, were... yeah. I mean, this... I mean, it, it's not a smoking gun, mm-hmm. but I, I think the, the point of this lawsuit is to say that the, the trigger was pulled years before. All right. Now I know what you meant when you said he likes to drop bombs. Yeah, and there's more. Essentially, they're saying the university withheld information from the police, that they made question, uh, decisions of discretion that only could exist in the college system, that only exist in private universities, where you enter into a different kind of dimension. And because of that, in the same way that if I stab you perhaps 20 years ago, and decades later complications result in your death, you'll still be on the hook for that homicide. They've already asked Wash you to settle for $50 million, and you know they're getting ready to drop this, this lawsuit, which will you know, as, as sort of pitched to me, will really, you know, take shots at the, the foundations of sort of the cultural university system that we have created that, um, you know, that brings kids in, that protects them, and yet treats them as adults. And this very, you know, this, this kind of mirage that we believe in as a society, that this, this is the way that education works. This is the way that our kids and our universities should relate to each other. Which, which is an issue that, that has interested me for a long time. So how do you guys feel about the case so far? I mean, do you buy the arguments? Well, it's surely a compelling case. I mean, I think that there's more to this case than what you first hear about in the news. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, too. I think Danny brought up like a, ro- a lot of, lot of interesting points that, I don't know. I, initially, I guess my, my gut reaction, I guess, when I first heard this lawsuit was that it was immediately going to get thrown out. Like, I didn't think it's sort of chance. Um, But after hearing what Danny had to say and what what they're laying out, I think there's definitely something, I don't know, there's something fishy going on (laughs) with the way universities operate. Well, well, and even if they weren't to win this case, because, you know, just from the, what we heard from the details from Danny, it seems like they have a pretty big mountain to climb. But moving beyond that, it's raising some big questions, and I think that these questions could really, you know, spread amongst the the university community. They, I mean, this is just an, this is an opportunity to look at what what's the university responsible for. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was I was really struck by <laughs> um, this idea of a mirage that we hear later that, you know, Danny says this is a mirage that we believe in as a society, that this is the way education works. And that definitely is something that I took for granted. Like this idea that our judicial code, our university administrators are sort of looking after us. They're protecting us. And I guess I never really thought about what they're protecting us from. And are they protecting us or are they more protecting themselves from publicity or you know, bad publicity resulting from things we might do as students. Well, I feel like this kind of lack or this kind of immunity to the outside world is one of the many reasons that our parents pay so much for us to go to school like this. Like, because we have the ability to go to the school and there is this little bit of like of a cushion 
where there are fewer consequences for you know messing up to a certain extent. Uh, there's no like permanent record repercussions if if we do screw up. Yeah, well, I, and I think society and, and culture has idolized this this notion of of college. Just look at movies. I mean, look 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 at how it's it's portrayed. I mean, I, you you come to school for or you come to college specifically as a time to explore and a time to learn about yourself and a time to make mistakes, go on adventures, go be reckless because this is the time to do so. It's almost like the real world's waiting. We've pressed pause from when you graduate high school to the time when you graduate college and everything in there is all about, quote, self-discovery. Yeah, and self-discovery can often result in (laughs) self-destruction in some ways. And that brings us right back to where we were with this lawsuit. Self-discovery leading to the absolute worst-case scenario of self-destruction. Why did universities develop judicial codes in the first place? And if they're so messy, why do we keep them around? Are we paying for protection from the law in our tuition money? We ask these questions and more next time on Frame. Support for today's episode of Frame comes from the Washington University Political Review, which has provided us with editorial guidance and will be hosting our episodes on its website, www.wooper.org. That's www.wupr.org. Special thanks to Danny Wiskentowski of the Riverfront Times for getting up early on a Sunday to interview with us. Our theme music was composed by our in-house renaissance man, David Gilmore. He also mixed today's episode. And finally, we just want to say thank you for listening. We know we have a lot of room to grow as a show, and we would love some feedback. If you have any questions or comments, story ideas, or guest suggestions, shoot us an email at framepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time.